As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Coming up on this one, how far are Manchester United from Manchester City in terms of success on the football pitch? And what can they realistically do to close the gap next season? I'm Mark Chapman. This is the Athletic Football Podcast. Against probably the best team in the world in this moment. And I think we are the only team in the world who is capable of fighting back against this team. We want to be there. And that is the next step we have to make. With us today for this one, the Athletics, Mark Critchley and Laurie Whitwell. Uh, you were both at Wembley. Uh, you're, bo- you're both actually smiling. So that it, it, it wasn't, wasn't all bad then, Mark. Well, I cover both clubs, so I've got to stay professionally neutral. You're an but you had to get down and back. Well, no, I did. You? I did have to get down and back. And that involved um, a half, well, half four start on Saturday morning, um, as well as a taxi back to my hometown in Chorley the night before. And then off to Leyland and a seven and a half coach journey down to Wembley, which was uh, all the fun of the fair. I've got a new appreciation for the lads who actually choose to do this, even when there aren't train strikes on. But um, I've got to say, it's, I, I really enjoyed it. They were very welcoming, the Leyland Reds. And it was it was a really enjoyable way of going down to the game. Do you have to go down with reds and back with blues? <laughs> that would have been interesting. Uh, no, so just um, I just went on the way down. Uh, and then the, with all the post-match, uh, I, like all the coaches had basically left me at Wembley by then. So there was a, I had to scrimp around for a, for a lift back up. But yeah, um, yeah, no, it was a it was a different way of experiencing the game. Like I said, but um, you know, and it's one thing that a lot of these fans would have done anyway. And I did speak to you know, having travelled down with City, uh, United fans, I did speak to City fans outside Wembley way afterwards. And um, and yeah, and to be fair, despite all the disruption, despite all the chaos, despite everything that we've been talking about weeks and weeks up to this game, most fans seem to know about it in enough time to make their own arrangements and, and not have too much of a problem. So it wasn't too bad in the end, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I have to say I went down and back in the day and it all seemed, I, I mean, not in the interest of balance, just this was the way my sat-nav <laughs> took me, but I went down the blue route and back the red route. <laughs> Because I, I didn't leave Wembley till half seven. So the red route was going to be a lot quieter come come 7.30, I thought. But 
It was. I mean, it was all perfectly fine, wasn't it, Laurie? I know there were a few arrests, but it was. It was all. Yeah, was yeah, all I did the same uh, as well. Sort of as you, I, I drove down on the morning and then I actually stayed over at my friends. I was supposed to give Mark a lift back, well, potentially, and then I, I let him uh, loose with the Manchester Evening News well, boys because nice I, I decided to stay down <laughs> with my friend. Um, and then, yeah, drove, but I drove back, you know, stopped off at Northampton on the way back on the services and there was, you know, United shirts, City shirts still that they were, they were kind of making their way back gradually and it, it all seemed fine. Yeah, for all the kind of expectation that this could be a 2011 repeat with the violence and the um, the kind of anarchy, I suppose, uh, it was it was pretty passed without much incident, it felt like to me. Um, I, I don't know whether that's because the actual, the way the game went was sort of City keeping United at bay almost and United trying to land a few punches, but not really being able to. So perhaps people had come to terms with the result in a more kind of measured way. It was a perfectly good occasion for Wembley. In the 60s and the 70s, the club, the clubs and the players were were very close, actually. And, you know, Mike Summerby and George Best were mates and all of that. And I did, I did think, oh, we t- talked about it at the end of the game, I did think with Ferguson and Summerby bringing the, the trophy out, and I thought... Before City went to get the cup, there was quite a lot of hugging and chatting between the set, both sets of players. I mean, Fred went round all the all the City players. Bruno Fernandez and Bernardo Silva were involved in a big discussion. I think Eric Ten Hag gave Gundogan a big hug. I don't know whether he was trying to sign him or not, but gave Gundogan <laughs> a, a big hug. It probably felt a little bit, and ardent United and City fans will probably hate me for this, but it did feel slightly friendlier than maybe I was expecting. Well, you even had Pep Guardiola um, embracing Ferguson and yeah. getting the trophy and you're thinking Fergie of old, I mean, obviously he's been retired a fair few years now, but I don't think he'd been quite as uh, sort of, I don't know, satisfied or, or kind of okay with um, a manager replicating his treble. I mean, I asked Guardiola after the game, did he did he mention that at all? And he said, oh no, there was no time. and kind of laughed, laughed, yeah. laughed it off, obviously. But um uh, but yeah, I agree with you. There's a kind of, I don't know, quite a lot of respect flowing sort of both ways. Maybe more from United to City because they're obviously, you know, Ten Hag particularly has worked with Guardiola, hasn't he, at Bayern Munich. Um, that respect is, is clearly there and, 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 and I'm, an ambition to try and match what he's created at City. And he knows that, you know, to kind of make it all combative probably isn't the best solution um, and kind of show magnanimity in the situation, I think is the best way to forward. Yeah, no, I think um, there is a level of respect and you've seen it, like you're talking about the, the, the groups of the Portuguese speakers and the Brazilian players there, they've built up their own little community in this part of the northwest that stretches across even City, United, Liverpool even. And um, yeah, look, I think, I, Laurie's mentioning about the game and the way it went, I think that maybe played a part, but I was I was out on Wembley way before kickoff and it was, you know, having been a veteran of that Euro 2020 final, I couldn't think of a scene that was any more different than that. It was a lot, you know, there really was just good-natured um, fans segregating. Once you go up Wembley Way, once you go up the steps, segregating in the different directions, you know, a bit of a bit of banter, a few chants, but really nothing uh, like what <laughs> I've heard happened in 2011. And the same at the service stations on the way down as well. They were segregated like you mentioned there was different routes for City and United and you know you can't strictly enforce that because you, you, I was at a few service stations still a few City fans milling around but absolutely no problems whatsoever. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. 
Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Do you think... Laurie, you go first. That actually, the game basically was a was a microcosm of of United season under Ten Hag. All right, decent in places, but with a lot of work to do. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. Um, it, it was it was basically a measure of where they're at right now, and I think maybe he will be satisfied that they actually gave a decent account of themselves. It wasn't a walkover. I think City did pull away in the second half. Um, I mean, you also had the kind of chaos of the opening 12, 13 seconds, whatever the official time has, has gone down as. Um, I mean, that was stunning, wasn't it? We were kind of just settling in to kind of start you know, taking appreciation of what was going on on the pitch and already City are ahead and you're thinking, wow, this could, this could be huge. I mean, the first five minutes, I think United did, did look overwhelmed um, almost and you know, for all the players kind of expressing calm, calm with their hands you know, towards the pitch um, to try and sort of tell themselves it was okay to go behind so early against City. But that would have just been the total opposite of what Ten Hag wanted because he's very strong on scoring the first goal and being able to then build your way into a game and, and against City as I think Critch has said on a previous podcast that we've done that, that you know they kill the game don't they City at that point and actually for United to respond in the way that they did and I thought they caused City some issues really they, they were kind of well organised defensively and nicked the ball and were able to break quite well uh, quite smartly it was just that final third they weren't really picking the, the crucial pass and I don't know if that's personnel I don't know if that's structure necessarily but I think they actually the, the plan was actually pretty good and and they did execute it fairly well uh, but it's just not having you know an elite striker at the top of the pitch I think Rashford's better off the left Sancho I thought actually did quite well in those moments those kind of close um, exchanges where you're having to kind of thread a ball through a, a tight situation um, but then I've also seen other people think and this is probably justifiable that does he really grab the game and, and force it in the way that you'd want a United winger to do um, like perhaps Garnacho did in the second half when he came on but yeah I think it, you're right in terms of it being a kind of uh, a symbol of United season really you know some some catastrophe <laughs> you know if you think back to the 6-3 and 7-0 and 4-0 so with those two goals they were both catastrophic goals really for United to concede the organisation of them really poor but then also some character and, and, and some hints that actually under Ten Hag they can build something The way that it starts is the worst possible way to start a game against City um, not only because you can see that sounds obvious but because they will just shut a game down. They'll they'll have safe spells of possession. They'll pass it around, and they won't let you get back in. And I know that um, I was I was surprised by how well United came back into the game after having that kind of smack in the mouth right at the start. Even up until the penalty, I just didn't feel that there was. Can you can you remember a, a real clear cut chance up until that point? And then to get that route back into the game and then squander it again with two really soft goals. That was, I think, from United's perspective, would be the frustration, was that you, you were given a route back in. Um, City, I don't I haven't watched them a lot this season. You know, they're, they're a team that's capable. I remember being on this podcast the last time was after the Real Madrid game, uh, the second leg at home. And they have those sustained waves of pressure that can just hit a team and break them. Uh, the, you know, the reigning European champions. 
um, when that first goal goes in, that's what I was expecting. Uh, and I thought, you know, this this could be a real nightmare from a United perspective. That didn't happen. And yet still, United didn't really take advantage of that and didn't really just come into the game in the way that I thought was still possible. Um, and yeah, like I agree. I think it showed a difference in levels that's been there all season. I know Ten Hag was coming out afterwards saying that this game, we mentioned it as well on Saturday, this game was the difference between uh, the total number of games that each side have won this season, so 41 versus 43, and this this was the split. But I think that doesn't really give a true reflection, if we're honest, of exactly where these two teams are at. No, and, and, and just on the football they, they played, Mark, I mean, until Garnacho came on, came on they weren't very crisp, were they? I mean, it's. I understand the criticism of De Gea on his. Well, the, the kicking stuff has, has been there for ages. I understand the criticism, particularly on on the second goal. But United going forward, the number of passes that they overhit, bobbled in, chipped in. I mean, there were, there was nothing like the crispness and the fluency of City at all during the game, and it only actually improved. And you could see some patterns when Garnacho came off. Well, I think Garnacho is a player that has that impact. Um, and this is maybe one of the biggest questions that was coming into the final was about whether we'd start or not. Um, we were asked to do our predicted 11s last week and I, I picked him in mine and he was the only difference from the one that started. But only because really I think there is this question now about how much of a how much of an effect can he have in the game from the start. I'm a big believer in Jaden Sancho. I always have been. I've... I've been very patient with him personally and I think he can still have a really big impact at United one day because he's got that ability but it's been two years now and it feels like if anybody came away from that game on Saturday is a bit of a fall guy is a bit of a scapegoat for it unfairly or, or not um, it was him and that's because he, he's just not this player that so far in a United shirt we've seen have that kind of impact on games that you're talking about with Ganacho now I was thinking yesterday he reminds me a lot actually Sancho of um, of Grealish at City last last year where he's a player who nobody's quite sure what he's doing in a game to affect it that's turned around 180 for Grealish this season even though he's not really added the same goals and assists that people were looking for people have a very different perception of what he is now I think people are still trying to figure out United fans especially exactly what Sancho brings to the team and if they had that sort of player like well, you know, if they had Garnacho's impact through 90 minutes of the game, imagine just how much more dangerous United would be. So as far as the future is concerned, I mean, we, we, we will. We will talk players. We'll talk players who will be moved on. We'll talk players who will come in. We'll, we'll talk about Ten Hag as well. But there's going to be an uncertainty in this discussion, isn't there, Laurie? Because there's uncertainty within the club. And then until they sort stuff out ownership-wise and boardroom-wise, the whole thing is just in the mire. Yeah, there's lots of questions regarding that. And, I mean, what they say internally and what they're projecting to agents and players is that it's business as usual. Um, So they are progressing with the mindset of, you know, the fact that they overspent last summer and and they're having to be um, very tight with their budget this summer. Um, obviously they could only do loans in January so that's that's what they're progressing with and that's the kind of basis of having conversations with targets and trying to assess the landscape but yeah by the at the base of it you've then got well okay what happens if then Sir Jim Ratcliffe takes over the club or you know indeed Sheikh Jassim and, and the Qatari bid um, although that's looking less likely just given everything that you hear does that change the dynamic greatly I, I don't know I think it seems like 
I mean, Avram was there again, wasn't he? Uh, his third trip to Wembley this year for this uh, expensive private jet flight, £250,000 a trip. I mean, he didn't answer any questions as he came through the mix zone afterwards. You know, he wouldn't do, I suppose. But I do think there needs to be clarity. There's a suggestion that there will be some clarity this week on that. But then you sort of check it out with people and they say, well, we heard this, you know, two, two months ago, the same kind of thing. So it's very there's cloak and dagger there's claim and counterclaim but there's certainly people that have you know that work with Sir Jim Ratcliffe that feel like they're putting the moves in place to you know ultimately take control of the club but as until you get anything confirmed even they don't know you know for sure so it's it's yeah this kind of guessing game a little bit and and in the midst of all that as you say they've got sales that they need to make they've got signs that they need to make can they really push through on those things when there's this uncertainty over who actually you know signs the checks or gives the ultimate thumbs up we're led to believe that at the moment as it stands if United want to make a sign and I know Avram was there but it's, it's Joel Glazer that's the um, the kind of ultimate arbiter on that and it hasn't yet reached the stage where bidders would be um, included in conversations about who they might be going for budget wise is this at the moment with no takeover is this more the budget they have is it more to do with financial fair play than it is um, how much money the Glazers will will give Ten Hag? Yeah, I think so because I mean, in the last financial results, they said that they would pay off two hundred million pounds. It's a little bit more than that because of the interest, but of the revolving credit facility, you know, the, the company credit card, as, as I call it, which was what they used to make signings last summer. So if they pay that off because they've you know got revenues in, then theoretically they could spend. It's three hundred million is the maximum they can spend on this revolving credit facility. So you know if, if they really wanted to, they could push the boat out, and obviously they could you know pay in instalments or whatever. But um, yeah, I think it's the you know financial fair play, profit and sustainability rules that are limiting what they can spend this summer and we've previously reported 100 million plus sales but then you also speak to people that say well they kind of need to sell first it's 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 difficult to work out without seeing the full accounts exactly what united can do based on the rules but this this certainly that's a that's a conscious um sort of factor in, in many people's minds at the club and therefore, and, and this doesn't make it very sexy, Mark, because people want to know, oh, are they going to sign this player? Are they going to sign that player? But actually, it means when you look at the list of players that they're being linked with, it, even if they buy two of them, I can't see how they can afford anybody else. No, that and that is almost a symptom of the position that they were in this time last year. I think that's what you've got to go into this window conscious of, is that... United spent upwards of two hundred million pounds outlay last year on transfers to get on with this rebuild that everybody said needed to be done, but that was <laughs> speaking to people at the time that was much more than they ever expected to spend going into that window. They knew there would be a knock-on effect for windows after that, but it still wasn't enough to meet the scale of the task that needed to be done. And so <laughs> you can look at names now, obviously. We've been reporting about Mason Mount. Laurie's mentioned Rasmus Holmond and uh, Colin Mwani as well. These names are out there. It's going to be difficult to address those positions that need to be addressed, but address the other positions that need to be done as well. On top of that, if we're looking at a midfielder and a striker, we still haven't ad- addressed the biggest elephant in the room and the biggest elephant in the room on Saturday, which was the goalkeeping situation and David De Gea. So it's, again like I say, a, a knock-on effect of this bigger, deeper, the breadth of the rebuild that needed to be done this time last year. I think we were all conscious of it then that 
this club was nowhere near. I mean, people didn't really expect them to finish top four, did they? They have. And so they're in a strange position at the end of this season where it's a good season, it's full of progress, but there's so much work that needs to be done. And that's really, it's quite rare for a, for a club of United size and stature to end up in that because you often think it's just, you look at City and Liverpool over the last few years, it's only ever really been a few additions here and there. With United, the, the scale of the task is much greater and the funds mean that it's going to be stretched over a number of years. Which is why a, a lot of United fans, I think, will probably understand the move for Mason Mount. And they do They do probably need midfield reinforcements. But a midfielder might be third or fourth on the main list of priorities, wouldn't it? I think there was a bit of a surprise when... Mount was the first name that's really been solidly, incredibly linked. It's part of the package, like I say, that of this much bigger, deeper rebuild that needs to happen. It's it's probably a, an element of it is that it's probably a slightly easier to, deal to do than some of the other names that have been banded, certainly some of the top priority names, if you think of Kane, for example. Um, so that's maybe why it's come out first. A- again, but take your pick. You know, there's We're looking at a squad here that has several different holes and different people might prioritise different ones. I still think the chase for Frankie de Jong last summer was so protracted and so high profile and ultimately unsuccessful that Ten Hag's still going to be looking for a, a midfielder who he feels is able to take the ball under pressure, take the ball off the back four, carry it up the field. That's what he was looking for. Whether that's Mason Mount or not is a different question, but it's not that much of a surprise that he's still looking in that area for me at least. Yeah, I'd agree. I mean, when we came out of January, the, the, the two positions actually were, you know, clearly centre forward. That, that is absolutely, um, you know, just beyond um, anything you could, it's beyond scale in terms of how important that is really for United in the summer. Um, and even to the point where, you know, Ten Hag ideally, I think, would like an experienced striker and a younger striker so that they've got that kind of dynamic where, you know, you've got one that perhaps you know for future years would be a great you know asset for you know five six years but that, that isn't immediately under pressure to perform so like a Hoyland so Atalanta is 20 you know so so that they would probably be a gamble if they went for that but as Critch has touched on um it's it's a deal that is there to be done if the price is right you know Atalanta do sell their players that, that's something that he's looked at um, the player himself, I mean, then Harry Kane is the one that Ten Hag, you know, sees as the ideal centre forward candidate. How could he not be? Thirty goals um, this season for Spurs in a in a bad Spurs team. He's done it season after season. He's still actually um, playing a number of games. I think it's like forty five games on average he's played in the last nine years, um, which is so it's a good you know for all the kind of idea that he's getting on and he's he's somehow got injury problems. I don't, I don't really think that stands the test in, in the statistics. Um, but then again, does Daniel Levy want to sell to a Premier League rival? You know, the idea is absolutely not. So do United really go, want to go and push that like they did with the Frankie de Jong situation and, and have a, a long drawn out summer? Is a free transfer more likely next summer? Um, so yeah, they're, they're the kind of questions. But I do think midfield, as, as Chris has touched on, is something that United do need to enhance just because, I mean, they signed Ericsson and Casemiro last summer who obviously you know raised the level that United were able to get to in terms of control. Ericsson, I think, has drifted probably in, in recent weeks, certainly physically. He's 31, um, Casemiro's 31. So you've got these two guys there over the age of 30 that... You know, are, are you starting central midfielders? I mean, Mason Mount's 24. He's won the Champions League already. He's you know been Chelsea's player of the season twice. I, I, I can see that some people are looking at that thinking it's not really a signing that excites me. But I think actually maybe that's what United have lacked in in, in previous years, where you've you've had these kind of star names and 
you know, let's go for the shiny thing. Well, actually, this this is a potential player. If Ten Hag thinks that, um, and you know, I think he first saw him play for Vitesse Arnhem against Ajax, and Vitesse won. Um, if if Ten Hag thinks that, then you kind of you, know, you have to, I think, understand that he's seeing the how the team would function totally in his mind. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. How many do they want out? How many could they actually get money for? There's a few, I think, that they could get money for. I mean, Dean Henderson's probably the the most um, obvious one just because he's been on loan at Nottingham Forest. He he, he wants to be a number one somewhere. So He's that's... he's not in the United goalkeeper conversation, then, he, anymore? He probably, well, he, he could be, but I think it's already got to a point where Ten Hag ideally would you know like a, a goalkeeper that is... Um, brilliant with his feet, you know, I, I, and he gave that first hint, didn't he? After the City game, he's been asked about De Gea so many times: Is he going to be a number one goalkeeper? Is he going to sign a new contract? And he's always said, "No, we want him to stay." You know, we trust in him. You know, he's got the most clean sheets this season. This was the first time um, where he was asked about De Gea's kicking, particularly, and he said, "Look, you know, there's issues in games that we want to build on that aren't." quite right and that was the first kind of indication that yeah he he ultimately does want to have a, a better goalkeeper in that department and, and Henderson um, for for all his um, character and, and shot stopping I don't know if he's actually that much more comfortable on the ball than, than De Gea um, so and Nottingham Forest are right there to say for example I think there's another club as well that has expressed an interest maybe Tottenham given um, Hugo Lloris's um, departing this summer but um that you could get, you know, twenty five, thirty million for him. I, I generally think that, and that would then, if you could funnel that into, you know, say Mount, that that would be maybe, you know, half or I don't know, four fifths of what Mason Mount might cost you. I, I don't know what, how that would shake down, but so I think that's one. Scott McTominay is another one where Newcastle have expressed an interest. Um, uh, Fred, uh, we saw Marco Silva have a conversation with him after the game where Fulham visited Old Trafford and he's he's 29, I think he might be 30 now actually Fred, he's got one year left as well so he maybe is the more obvious candidate to be sold, he won't get as much money maybe as McTominay but y- y- you've, have, you've got more years with McTominay at the club so I mean Harry Maguire, that's the other big question, we sort of mentioned him in a piece this, this morning on The Athletic about transfers to watch, 
the indications that I get are that he wants to stay and that, you know, it would probably be a difficult deal to do if United did want to sell him. But how satisfied will he be at sitting on the bench if he is to do the same again next season? You know, Victor Lindelof started the FA Cup final instead of him. So, uh, and Gareth Southgate's mentioned, hasn't he, about his England position, you know, being in jeopardy if, if he doesn't get more minutes. So, um, they're, they're big. I, I wonder if, you know, United have tried to sell better. You know, James Garner, look at him last summer where there was sort of a bit of disagreement, I suppose, from fans that wanted him to be given a chance. I mean, he's actually done okay, I think, last sort of month or so under Dyche at Everton. Um, so maybe, you know, time will tell on that exact deal. But I mean, at least, I feel like at least in that one, they, they did. Tenag had decided he wasn't going to make it in his team. They got you know good money for him, sort of ten million or so. I know there's, there's add-ons and things, but um, I think that was that was fine. So United are conscious of getting better at selling players because they need to just just for funds, but also for competitive tension in the squad. You know to kind of keep these players on their toes, really. And then the final one is De Gea. Then you may know, you may not know. I don't know. But what does your gut tell you that they're going to do? Mark, you go first. My gut. I was asked this yesterday as well. I was asked, what do I think they'll do and what do I think they should do? And I think most people now, there's a building consensus that what they should do is say, thank you very much, but time's up. And that, I think that's the conclusion that you have to come to. It, like Saturday was a microcosm in itself in terms of, we mentioned the kick in there, but you look at Ortego's role in that first goal, picking out Haaland out on the right to expose a big duel on the right flank so that it comes back inside and they score after 13 seconds. When De Gea kicks those long balls upfield, he's just kicking it to get rid of it. That's the difference. United need a keeper that's able to distribute like that. So what I think he should do is that they should, you know, say, thanks very much, but see you later. Um, and have a bit more of the ruthlessness that we associate with United in the past that they perhaps haven't shown in the last in the last decade or so. But what do I think will happen? Um if I was going to put a fiver on it, I'd say he probably stays at the minute. Um, we, he's been, he spoke very confidently. Uh, he was giving interviews a few months ago about how he thought it would all end uh, in, in, in agreement, essentially. Um, there's not been those interviews as much anymore, uh, but look, I think that tells you that from, from the hair side, it's all agreed. That it isn't quite over the line yet, tells you that there's still a bit of a grey area there and, and, and things could still change. But... Um, if I was going to make a prediction, which I never really liked doing, I would say that he probably does stay, yeah. I think um, Mark's uh, explained it perfectly there, really. The, the question mark I have is is that it has felt like it's been agreed for a while, this the contract, and why hasn't it been announced? Why hasn't it actually been confirmed? Because you'd have thought like, maybe after you know, he, he got... Uh, announced as you know the Golden Glove winner for the season that they go okay actually and we've signed we've, we've committed him so next season you know I think there is that optics um, element of any kind of contract announcement um, and so yeah it'd be interesting to see how long this goes on for now the season's finished before any uh, conclusion is reached or, or sorry any uh, announcement is made just because, yeah, I think it, it's felt like it has been sorted for a while, and you know, um, that the, the, they basically, you know, Tenag thought, well, listen, if I've got a certain amount of money, 
I'm not going to go and spend it on the goalkeeper right now because he's sort of doing okay. I know there's some issues, but I can kind of deal with it. But I think maybe that 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 mindset might maybe that's changing where he where he actually thinks I, if I can get another goalkeeper this summer, if I sell this player and and or maybe if I forego that player to bring in, this actually has become more of an important issue for me. Uh, Laurie, Mark, thank you uh, very much. Uh, that's it. You can subscribe to the Athletic for one pound ninety nine. Uh, a month for the first 12 months, just go to theathletic.com slash football pod. Uh, thanks for listening. The Athletic.